Wait, so what's a hot girl summer? <laughs> Is it just like living large as a hot girl for the summer? This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by my co-hosts, and I will go counterclockwise since we're all in one place at Tablet Studios, Stephanie Butnick, deputy editor of Tablet Magazine, Stephanie Butnick. It is good to be here and good to be looking into your eyes looking, as you introduce me. Such a pleasure. And uh, Tablet, what are you? Are you editor at large, senior editor? Dire- director of Secret Police. Tablet head of HR, Leah Leibowitz. How are you, Correct. sir? Chag, uh, post Chag Shavuos. Post Chag, you had a good Shavuos? I had the best Shavuos. Or as, as my father. <laughs> Father used to call it Holocaust Day for Cheese. <laughs> Wait, what? It sounds better in Hebrew. Elizabeth, by the way, my eighth grader, is is militantly Ashkenaz in her pronunciation. She literally went on a rant two nights ago at dinner Shavuos. and said, Shavuos. said, what is this Shavuot? If it was good enough for my great-grandparents, Shavuos is good enough for me. And so we're all Shavuos all the time here. I don't observe Shavuos. I don't study from seven to midnight. That's, that's the that's best. TV time. I'm sorry. I, there's a lot of Judaism that so, appeals to me, but I don't do Shavuos. What I observe is what I call Shavuos break, which is when you work a tablet, you get a day off. And if you're like me and you don't necessarily, like, like, wait, I observe what, the what day off. What is this again? Uh, the giving of the Torah. Okay, I'll, I'll take it. It's unbelievable. <laughs> Whatever, man. And I feel, because like people have to actually take all of these holidays off from their regular jobs, right? right. Like fall break, right? When we're off for like all those Jewish holidays. I keep in mind the gratitude I have as someone who doesn't need those days mm. off, but really likes them. If you were ever headhunted by a secular publication, the first thing you'd say is, now listen, there are about 11 holidays that I don't, I shouldn't have to take them as personal days. I'll just get them, right? Yes, That's what you would yes. negotiate for. Um, it's like that Alice and Jenny line your, in West uh, Wing. It's like, it's one of those Jewish holidays. Jewish what's holidays? your Atsum Gedalia policy? <laughs> Do I get off on, yeah. on that? Uh, the other great thing that happened for Shavuos was I picked David up at preschool yesterday. So second day Shavuos, I pick him up at 1245. I come home, it's one o'clock, just the two of us. And he looks up at me and says, Daddy, Anna says is Shavuot, I get ice cream. <laughs> so his older sister, his eight-year-old sister, had prepped him to demand midday ice cream in honor of, but he, he knew the holiday. As as well he should. And I felt I had to go get him some midday ice cream. That's we, correct. on the other hand, uh, went to the Great Hill in Central Park, where, of course, who else? Rabbi Chaim from Chabad of the West Side arranged a- Who else? Around the clock- <laughs> reading of the Ten Commandments. It's a good thing there's only 10 because you can do it every half you hour. You just went through the 10 again. It's like and again weather and again on the ones. Again and again. <laughs> <laughs> you give us 10 minutes, we'll give you 10 commandments. <laughs> we'll give you literally the world. 10, <laughs> ten wins. Uh, and they have ice cream for, for all of us. And there were like 1,100 people there. Like every from Jew on the Upper West Side of Which Manhattan. Just eating ice cream. <laughs> Just eat the ice cream. This is the point where I feel like Josh Cross is definitely thinking about lactose intolerance. I feel like you are, are because you are the person, producer Josh, who coined the term Jew belly, which you claim is a widely known term for lactose intolerance, but as far as I know, comes from your hamlet in New Jersey. <laughs> but I get to see you there in the corner thinking lactose it is, intolerance. I have to say, like, it is a little cruel that we are people who typically don't do well with dairy. And yes, that is a totally Ashkenaz stereotype of like weakling. Eastern Europeans. Oh, I'm so nauseated. But it is amazing. Like, like we have a holiday dedicated to dairy. We have a holiday with what you're supposed to do on it. There's some other stuff too, but like the most important part (laughs) is to eat dairy. (laughs) Do you remember that I did the research on this, that there's a scholarly article about prevalence of lactose intolerance among Ashkenazi Jews. And And is it bunk? Well, what I recall, and please gastroenterologists in our audience write in and tell me, what I recall is- I know like three right now. That about 30% of the world has lactose intolerance and something like 47% of Ashkenazi Jews. We are slightly more lactose intolerant than the highly lactose intolerant- Quasi-significant. Human population. I think I recall like Africans, right? Like huge swaths of Africa has that issue. Do we have more lactose intolerance or Nobel Prizes? (laughs) 
Because <laughs> when I'm doing way, my emails, I want to know. At the <laughs> moment, the first Jew invents cure for lactose intolerance. That Nobel will be Price. the Nobel Prize to they end get the all Genesis Nobel Prizes. Prize. By the way, we have a letter from a new listener who is curious about tinfoil and top sheets. and th- Like she's tuned in late and forgets some of the Jew-Gentile arguments we've had. So we will we will get to that. But among the other things we'll get to today are we have, we have two guests. We are bringing you the return of Michael Solomonoff and Steve Cook, the Philadelphia chef and restaurateur behind the sensational Zahav in Philadelphia. They've opened a new Israeli restaurant in Brooklyn called Laser Wolf. Stephanie and Josh were there. And so we're going to have their report from Laser Wolf. We're also bringing you an interview with reporter and tablet contributor Jamie Kirchick, whose new book is Secret City, The Hidden History of Gay Washington, which honestly I've heard from about 12 people in the past week is one of the best books they've read. It's, and, and, you know, the cliche like unput downable. Like yeah. this is one of these, but you start reading and be like, okay, well, I'm going to read a history book and it's going to be really interesting. And then 30 pages and like, wait, this happened? Wait, World War II started because, wait, the comment, no comment was coined by whom? Like all these amazing little tidbits that are just rollicking. This I, is like James Bond meets, it's fantastic. So a great, a great show for you today. But first, um, I want to catch up. Stephanie, what's up? The only thing I want to point out to listeners is that we're in the same room again. There's six of us in a quite small room and we are each are like flanked by a producer, right? Like Josh is right next to Liel. Robert Scaramuccia is directly across from me. Quinn Waller is right next to you. This is in um, case a fight breaks out. We have yes, <laughs> yes. for each of us to pause. Yeah. And they, they're going to like squirt water at us. Like, We're like in the middle latter day yeah. Beatles. We, like, we don't really like each other. We just, we have the management here to make sure we don't. I like that there's latter day saints and latter day Beatles. So I'll say, I don't even know why I'm in the same room with the two of you, because this weekend I shall be speaking at the Jewish Leadership Conference, which the I suppose, I suppose the, makes me, makes me a Jewish leader. You're going to the Jolk. I I should be in a in an exalted position. This is really funny. I'm I'm genuinely excited about this. It's a great lineup of people. Will you be giving a motivational speech with nine tips to a more successful Jewish entrepreneurial life or something? Five and yes. Do you want to give us a preview? Absolutely not. <laughs> we have I have to buy a, I, I a thousand dollar ticket to the Jewish exactly to right. the Jolk. I I will do it uh, after. I'll give you a taste of leadership after said conference unfolds. But I want to take a moment and talk about a real Jewish leader, someone who I'm so deeply grateful for. You all know him. He's graced all of you with small tokens of his appreciation. Hashem? Our listener, God. The next best thing to him is our listener, Lou Stone, who has given you, Stephanie? He has given me multiple things. My favorite thing from him is a photograph he took, an amazing photo that he took of a synagogue, and he sent it to me for my wedding. He has something else for me that he wants to drop off with my in-laws because they live near him in, in New Jersey. Mark, you um, have received Lou Stone gifts as well? I have received Lou Stone gifts as the well. I'm Yes, he sent me a hanger from an old hotel or house or something he discovered. It was it was somehow tying into my preppy clothing fixation. Like, here's the hanger that you should be hanging your Harris tweeds on or something. But yes, and did Quinn get, what did you get? Um, he sent me, okay, so first he sent me the Ashkenazi Haggadah. And then after that, he like sent me this like cute little letter and was like, like my synagogue or whatever is getting rid of a bunch of Jewish books. Like I heard that you're converting, like these could be really helpful in your Jewish journey. And then he sent me this like huge box, huge box of Jewish books that like Sam couldn't even carry from the post office. Like it was large. There's there's a ton of them. So So what's the latest from I receive a package. Yeah. uh, Totally out of the blue. No, no warning, nothing. Right. It's always signed. This is always wrapped in sort of brown paper. Brown paper. (laughs) With no return address. (laughs) It's like France in the 50s. I was like, uh, what is this? I opened this thing. So listeners to this here podcast might recall that on Christmas, we did a special event with Moshe Peking, which is a legendary Jewish Chinese kosher restaurant. 
if you're really into deep cuts, you know that I believe the first ever kosher Chinese restaurant in the city was this great place in Essex Street called Schmulke Bernstein. Schmulke Bernstein? Schmulke Bernstein. It was a very, very famous, you know, Bernstein on Broadway, I think is the, is the way it was kind of framed. Lou Stone sends me an ashtray. He had pilfered <laughs> and kept from the original Schmulke's. Schmulka Bernstein on Broadway, which honestly, like, I kind of want to, like, pick up smoking now. It's such a cool <laughs> thing. It's like a 70s, like, with a logo with some, I think, probably nonsensical Chinese characters because I couldn't, you know, figure out they actually meant anything. And it says, like, Bernstein on Broadway. It is probably the single greatest gift I received all year. And Lou Stone, you're amazing and we're so grateful. All the other listeners out there, what's wrong Wait, with you? Can, can Why I... can't you be more like Lou Stone? Work on that this summer. Make it your goal <laughs> it to your send goal. us stuff. We should register for gifts from our listeners. <laughs> news of the Jews N-O-T-J News of the Jews uh-huh. Uh-huh. News of the Jews. Leah, let me go straight to you as our Israeli correspondent. You've been doing deep research on the Israeli interwebs. Oh, my God. Uh, what's going on over there? I hear I hear there's some intercultural exchange going on. So apparently, the widow and the son of Israeli journalist Ehud Yonai are suing Paramount Pictures because it turns out the original hit, one of the greatest movies ever made, Top Gun, is based on an article by this Israeli journalist, Ehud Yonai, and now they're suing because they say the sequel was made in a way that basically kind of fucked them out of their royalties and they're really upset because they believe they deserve money. The best part about the story is that the article by Ehud Yonai on which this classic 1980-whatever movie was based was titled, and this is the most Israeli thing ever, Top Guns. <laughs> How great is that? So this is an Israeli guy who wrote an American article Top about guns. the U.S. Top guns. There are also a lot the of US other fighter articles. Pilots. There's, uh, this is not known, but a lot of great 80s blockbusters are based in Israel. Risky business. There is uh, uh, the Ghostbusters Inc. <laughs> uh, there is uh, Backs to the Futures. Very Breakfast, famous Breakfast movie. Club. <laughs> Breakfast Club. Breakfast Club. What would the translation? Club. Chadar Ocher Club. It's a very big movie. Uh, uh, Ferris Bueller, Deo from the Kibbutz. Is, How is, do you say 16 in Hebrew? <laughs> no, 18 candles. 18 candles. <laughs> <laughs> this is so, no, that's so, actually so the From version. That's the one they show in, in Haredi communities that's just all men. It's, and you have no, no idea what's going on. That's actually Molly Ringwald going to the army. <laughs> Not to be confused with 13 candles, which is about your bat mitzvah which, candle lighting ceremony. Absolutely. The other funny thing about this, and so the, the movie, of course, was a, huge hit in Israel when when I was growing up. But Israeli movies have their own very poetic, very lyrical titles because they're literally, they're a, it's a club of like, I think, six people who always okay, translate everything. translate all the names of these movies. So Top Gun, Top Guns in Hebrew, was translated as Havaba Shechakim, which loosely translated means love in the heavens. Mm. And now, uh, immediately after it came out, the Israeli Air Force decided this was a really good recruiting tool for their kind of shitty technical college that no one wanted to go to. And they made the following song. Oh, 
I guess it's all about the film industry this week because the next item in News of the Jews, I'm going to read from the Daily Beast article. People are angry over Bradley Cooper's prosthetics in Leonard Bernstein biopic. <laughs> so Bradley Cooper, who of course is a genius, as we know from Licorice Pizza. I thought you were saying he's a Gentile. Who is a Gentile and a genius. Though, I mean, he reads pretty Jewish. How many of us thought that Bradley Cooper- Well, Cooper is always like, you never know. Bradley and Cooper are both, oh. are both kind of pseudo crypto Jewish names and- they cast him in this movie as this Jewish guy, Leonard Bernstein, who was some composer in the 20th century, which, by the way, I think is completely fine. I have no, I do not think they need to go find a Jew. They get, Bradley Cooper can play anything he wants. Anything he wants. He's right. so good. But then there are people He's gold in an upcoming biopic. <laughs> <laughs> He's on the balcony. So, but apparently there are people who are peeved that um, they made him look a lot like Bernstein. I mean, peeved, meaning like seven people on Twitter. But okay. We'll That's literally this article, by the way. It's like people on Twitter's people on tweet. Twitter, Which is ridiculous. But we will follow this question down the rabbit hole because it raises interesting questions. And the, the question is basically the big nose they gave him to look like Leonard Bernstein, which, by the way, isn't even that big a nose. Like, I've seen big noses. Okay, I know from big noses. That's like a medium-sized nose, but it's bigger than Bradley Cooper's. And they're saying, is it anti-Semitic to make him look just like Leonard Bernstein? <laughs> um, no. That's the job of Hollywood makeup artists is to make the person look like the no, other like person. Those big, those Jews like those big Jews that they're playing. Is this even a so thing? It's, it's funny to me because if you look at this picture of him that was released, he doesn't look like Bradley Cooper in many. Like, he has, like, jowls. He has, right. like, liver spots. Like, he's he's made to look completely different. I have to say, different. when I saw that photo, I was like, oh, that's a photo that's of Leonard, Leonard Bernstein. Bernstein. Yeah, it looks like, just like oh, Leonard Bernstein. I'm like, wait, no, he doesn't have white, a white tufts of hair. Right. That's not that. I don't know how I feel about this. Sometimes you accuse me of being so excited about the scraps we get from, like, popular culture where I'm like, this is amazing. Bradley Cooper wants to be, like, he's directing this movie. Like, he wants to do a movie about Leonard Bernstein, and he's a really important figure in American culture and also Jewish culture. And so you're like, this is really, really cool. So what if they need to slap a big schnoz on him to, to play the part? <laughs> to make him look like the person oh, he's playing. Be mad That's awesome. he didn't get a prosthetic nose. If we were right. like, you've deracinated him, basically. Right. I think you're totally right there. That would be an uproar as well. You're totally right. I just want to put it out there now that when they're making the biopic of my life, when they decide that the life I've led as a premium Jew caster is, it deserves a biopic in 2060. Daniel I Radcliffe. I think they should play me as five, seven and three quarters. And I think that to do otherwise, some people are going to say it's anti-Semitic. Why did they take the six foot tall Gentile actor and shrink him down on, <laughs> on, on screen to five, seven to three quarters? And I just want it known. I'm comfortable. I want the actor, whoever it is, to play short. It also sounds like you want a Gentile to play you. I want a six foot tall, blonde, <laughs> blonde hair, blue eyed Gentile. But he should Bradley honor Cooper he should is... honor my height, which is five seven and seven eighths, but now three quarters as Who I shrink. else? What other big Jews do we want Bradley Cooper to be playing? Now that we know he can he can he can pull the nose off. So uh, well. Ariel Sharon. Um, in a fat suit. In a fat suit. Um, Benjamin Disraeli. Eye patch guy. Eye patch guy. <laughs> what's his name again? I'm playing. Cap and Crunch. Um, <laughs> Wait, literally, what's his name? Rashida Diane. Diane. Rashida Diane. Diane. <laughs> it's funny. Don't cut that out. I want people to know that it's I did. It's funny. My grandfather either had his memoir or a biography of him on a coffee table. And I do remember the picture oh, every, of him. Every, Is this every the scene Jew from Mad Men? Had, with the, had that, <laughs> had that <laughs> blue, <laughs> light blue cover. Right, Eye patch guy. It was totally <laughs> eye patch guy. And, uh, Moshe Diane. Who else? Moshe Diane. <laughs> Um, I want there to be a period costume drama in which he plays Disraeli. Leonard Cohen. He, Leonard Cohen. He's done Leonard Bernstein. He could do Leonard Cohen. Let's, okay. And Leonard Lopate. He should do all the Leonards. <laughs> but Stephanie Butnick, we have failed to mention the most important piece of NOTJ, News of the Jews from the, the past seven days. Do you want to take us out on a, 
On a sexy note. And here I was hoping we would forget about this one. Do you here want to bring sexy back? The New York Post, Sabbath service derails after couple begins having sex on Zoom. So there was a bar mitzvah service being Zoomed from Temple Beth L in Minneapolis. And yeah, everyone's cameras were on and, and one couple kind of got frisky during the ceremony. And um, the weirdest thing was no one turned their camera off. Like it went on for 45 <laughs> minutes, apparently. She was walking around naked. She got dressed. This is someone who has spoken to the post, but requested anonymity where you're like, okay, so you told the post about this. She was walking around naked. She got dressed. She's in and out of the Zoom. He was in the bed. He whipped it out. She started going to work. Someone on the Zoom saw and called her and was like, WTF, are you doing? You're on camera. She freaked out. Now, wait a second. You you actually skipped past my favorite part of that quote. It went on for about 45 minutes, said one person who saw the video and requested anonymity. Like, 45 minutes, good for them. That's, it was that's a real, amazing. It I was mean, a, look, I've, I've heard of uh, an Aaliyah, but this is ridiculous. You know, and, and I just think of it as a present to the bar mitzvah boy. <laughs> you're like, Today you're a man. We were going to give you a fountain pen. <laughs> you you we saw were, Aunt Sylvia <laughs> explaining to you. <laughs> The mysteries of life. Well, I've been saying all along, you can't really do Judaism over Zoom. Next time, if you want to have sex in a bar mitzvah, do it in person. Does this prove me right or very wrong? It is It is doing Judaism very well. It is a mitzvah to have pleasurable encounters on Shabbos. I once was in shul and a guy whom I won't mention and actually doesn't go to the shul anymore came in and sat down next to me about, you know, a good hour and a half into services and kind of like puffed his chest out and said, <clears throat> sorry, I'm late. My wife and I were performing a certain Shabbos mitzvah this oh. morning. <laughs> and I, I thought to myself, I don't fucking want to know that. Like this. Did you wash your hands afterwards? I mean, it was so weird. I feel like the mitzvah should be counteracted if you tell anyone <laughs> yes. about it. It's like your birthday wishes. They don't come true if you tell anyone. Yes, Josh, producer Josh. The thing that I read that is interesting about this is apparently the camera didn't get turned off, which made me incredulous at first, because this was a conservative shul. <laughs> no! The ruling was that, that it goes on monitor because you can't do that on Shabbat. So that there wasn't anybody monitoring the Zoom, which had been running, because that would be breaking Shabbat. So that's why it got guys, on for 45 minutes. Guys, as well, as, as, your as, business idea? as a representative of conservative <laughs> Judaism in this room, for the win, right? I mean, this is like, this shows, like in orthodoxy, they wouldn't have had the camera on. In reform, somebody would have turned it off. Only in conservative Judaism. Who do you see? And Sylvia. <laughs> but when we talk about the injunction to save a life, you could break Shabbat to save a life. I think we could have or saved- Or make a life. <laughs> So, some of you may remember that some years back, we took a road trip to Philadelphia, city of brotherly kebabs, a pilgrimage to the Israeli restaurant Zahav, the finest restaurant in America, to interview the genius chef Mike Solomonov and his partner Steve Cook. We aired this pilgrimage on episode 204, Philadelphia Shel Zahav. Go back and have a listen after you're done with this. But we've since eaten at all their other restaurants and now have the pleasure of welcoming them to this year, New York City with Laser Wolf. Named, of course, after the butcher and fiddler on the roof, it's a shipudia. 
which if you've been to Israel or read about Israel or curious about Israel, you know, is the sort of place where you get a lot of meat on skewers with salatim on the side. Super delicious. Stephanie and producer Josh Cross paid a visit. We paid a visit to the butcher. Have a listen. Be happy, be healthy, long life. And if a good fortune never comes, here's to whatever comes. Drink the highest life. So we're cooking solo. This is the name of a restaurant group. My name is Mike Salamanov. I'm the chef of Zahav. And we are here um, at Laser Wolf Brooklyn in the Hoxton Hotel in Williamsburg. And I am Steve Cook, also of Cook and Solo. I'm sitting right next to Mike with a beautiful view of all of Manhattan from the Hoxton in Brooklyn. Laser Wolf. Laser Wolf, your latest restaurant and your return to New York City. Laser Wolf, that sounds familiar. What am I thinking of when I hear that name? Hopefully you're thinking of Laser Wolf Philly, which we, <laughs> which we opened, <laughs> uh, opened in uh, February of 2020. But the name is a play on the character Laser Wolf from Fiddler on the Roof, who is the butcher. It's got a nice ring to it. And uh, it's, a, it's a grill, meat-centric grill restaurant. So we thought it was appropriate and fun. I love that. Like when you watched that, was that like in the back of your mind that like one day Laser Wolf would be like the greatest name for a restaurant? We both starred in day school productions of Fiddler on the Roof. So I think it was it was part of both of our unspoken uh, makeup. In which roles? I was Motala. Wow. The tailor. I was Motala the tailor. You yeah. got the girl. The I got- Laser Wolf. Was supposed yeah, to exactly. Marry. Exactly. I got Seidel, maybe? Mutal and Seidel, right? Yeah. yeah. I, think. I don't know. Wonder of wonder. <laughs> miracles of miracles. I mean, Laser Wolf wasn't exactly a hero of that story. No. Steve was fucking Tevia, though. Whoa, whoa. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. You wouldn't, you wouldn't, you this wouldn't know. This is crazy. We are breaking news here on Unorthodox. <laughs> <laughs> um, and like, have you guys ever, like, late at night started belting out? Fiddler tunes or no? Is that like in your past? Not together, but I would, for me, frequently. <laughs> okay, so Laser Wolf is a meat-centric restaurant. Tell us a little bit about the concept. Laser is modeled after a shpudiah in Israel, a skewer house. So it's a very common t- type of restaurant in Israel. The idea is that you sit down, you're brought out an array of salatim, cooked vegetable salads, hummus, fresh pita, to whet your appetite. And then that is followed by, to quote Mike, sticks of meat grilled over charcoal. It's pretty simple. It's pretty fun, elemental way to eat. You get a lot of different flavors on one table. And it was probably what we had in mind for Zahav when we opened, when we conceived of the restaurant in 2007, 2008. But it's so simple. It takes a lot of confidence, I think, to do something so simple. Maybe confidence we didn't have 15 years ago. And so even though it seems maybe like a simpler, less complex restaurant than others, there's a lot of complexity in doing the simple things really, really well. The point is for there to be sort of like a boisterousness, right? Like it's like a little raucous, not just casual, but like lively in a way. Yeah. I mean, I think that most of our restaurants are probably categorized as that lively. The thing about the Shibudia or the Israeli sort of experience is that it is um, sort of utilitarian as well, right? It's not fancy. It's where everybody can go and sort of eat and enjoy themselves regardless of what it is that you're looking for. We just feel like that that sort of celebration of food and of eating and of sharing is something that people here haven't really seen. So back in whenever we were starting out, you know, you would sort of deconstruct and you would refine and you would do all these things. And even the way you would plate was like really 
sort of formal and, you know, we'd copy Thomas Keller basically and Michelle Brower for Ronnie Drown. But, and then we'd go to Israel and you would just like, it was this very elemental way of eating that, that was like vegetable forward and fun and, and all those things. And nobody has really been doing it here. Well, it's funny because you say that you needed sort of like the confidence to, to get to this point. It also seems like you introduced a lot of people to the idea of Israeli cuisine in America. Do you almost feel like people needed to like start at Zahav and then you sort of like unroll different concepts and now you're like, it's a grill spot and there's backgammon tables and, you know, just like let loose. <laughs> I think to some extent, yes, because we what we were trying to not do with Zahav was play into stereotypes of what people thought Israeli cuisine was, which was essentially falafel. And so maybe, you know, if we had just done a kebab house initially, that might have also reinforced not a stereotype because this is a way Israelis eat, but there's a lot more to the food in Israel than falafel or kebabs or hummus. And so Zahab was a, a landscape to kind of explore a lot of those influences and, and broaden people's minds, introduce them to a lot of things and people who thought they knew what it was, show them how much bigger of a universe it was. So Zahab has done very well. I have no, we have no regrets. I think it did helps at the table for some of the more specific areas that we've focused on since. Can you tell us about some of the other restaurants? I mean, we spoke last in November 2019. We all uh, road trip to Philly and we ate, I think, at all of your restaurants and then ate donuts on the way home. Can you tell us sort of about the landscape of the Cook and Solo empire? So what do we have, like nine federal donuts? So including like stadiums? I think it's 10 all day. Okay, so 10 federal donuts. We've got four Goldies, which are falafels, where we serve just salad and falafel and pita sandwiches and these tahina milkshakes. It's vegan, actually, too. It's the whole thing. We have got Kfar, which is like a Israeli sort of bakery cafe. We have Abe Fisher, which is uh, more like Ashkenazi Jewish food. We have Laser Wolf Philly. We have Laser Wolf Brooklyn. We have Zahav. We have Merkaz, which is like pita sandwiches. And we just opened Lila. And we opened Lila, which is our uh, private event space. Oh, wow. That's a Philly? Yeah. What were the last two years like for you two, for the business? I mean, it's we, we hear a lot about what it was like. I'm just curious what, you know, you guys are here on the other end sort of opening new things. Looking back, I think it was a lot of different things. It wasn't all, it wasn't one thing. I mean, there was the initial phase where, you know, Mike and I would like walk around the park by our house in our bathrobes, kind of like doing a lot of soul searching about what was going on and what directions we could go. You know, were we going to just shut everything down and hunker down and see what happened. Were we gonna, you know, how were we gonna move forward? So that was one phase. We got past that. Then there was the sort of phase of how are we gonna build back the restaurant? There's an opportunity to keep things going. The programming is gonna be incremental and then we're gonna grow that and we have to grow our staff accordingly. Cause we had gone from, you know, March 16th, I think was a Monday when Philly shut us down officially. A lot of the restaurants were open as it was happening. We drove around to all the restaurants and talked to all the managers and the staff. And then we went from, you know, 400 employees that day to 30. So a lot of it was putting the pieces back together, which was an opportunity in and of itself. And then there was the, just the constantly changing programming, like trying to keep up with what we were allowed to do, what people were comfortable doing. There was a lot of like reinventing ourselves every, every month. Sort of gathering the staff and the personnel to do it as you well. Know, there was, hard. It was a long phase of like, we're going to do these pickups on a weekly basis rotating. And then it was outdoor dining and then limited indoor dining. And it was just really like, it was quite exhausting to be honest, because it was it was creating a new concept within a concept every three months. 
and trying to keep up with, with what was coming next. But, you know, not to minimize what the impact of the pandemic was because it was truly horrible, but our company, I think, now is stronger than it was when you guys visited us in 2019. And so when do you decide, you know, okay, it's time to go to a new city and try out a new, a new thing? I mean, that was sort of the way, the way that this project came around. Laser Wolf Brooklyn specifically, we, were, we got a call from Kevin and Rob of Boca Group. And they said, we've got this project. And they asked if we would be interested in this sort of collaboration, the hotel, and we agreed to it. I don't remember what we were feeling at the time. And if it was kind of like, well, it's all going to shit anyways, why not? Or, wow, we really think this is a cool opportunity that makes sense for us. Or we have to do something because we're like so bored. And this sounds like a great idea. It was the summer of 2020. I remember we were working with Skeleton Crews and we were working in these little pods because we were so afraid of cross-contaminating the working groups that we had in each restaurant. And Mike and I were sort of essential, non-essential personnel. So we would have these weekly Zoom calls with our key managers. And that was our contact with them. And then I think it was after that call, we were sitting out on your like back deck in your <laughs> South Philly house talking to Rob and Kevin. And I think it was... It was kind of like a little bit liberating to be able to think about the future in a concrete way. I mean, it was really invigorating to talk about doing something new, about bringing something new to life when all we've been talking about for the last five months is like how to keep things on life support, you know? So I think, I don't know, we're sort of restless and entrepreneurial in general. So I think it was kind of like candy to talk about something new. <laughs> you know, when we spoke last, something that came up was this idea of like food as a connector, food as a unifier. And I think that was in the context of like Israeli food and right, bringing people together and getting people at the same table. I mean, through the pandemic, food has been such an interesting through line, right? Like, and for you guys who think about food as, as a way of bringing people together, I mean, can you talk a little bit about both what people were doing about food? Is it ordering? Is it delivery? It's that, like the way you realize the role food has and restaurants have in people's lives. And then now as we're here in this beautiful new restaurant where people are so excited together, I mean, it's like hard to get reservations, right? People are excited to be back and to be together and to be eating meals together. I mean, how do you see food as, as sort of a through line there? Food and dining is entertainment. It's sustenance. It is like emotional Prozac through good times and bad. I mean, I feel like our job is incredibly important. You know, we have two hours with customers that need to release, right? I mean, there is like a lot of things that are that can be very negative in, in our life right now. And I don't know what food is. Food is like, it tells a story, obviously. It's a way to advocate your heritage or ancestry, uh, which we definitely do. It's a way to defend misconceptions about a culture, which we also do. Um, but it's just also what we do here, I think, is take people out of their post-COVID I don't know, whatever, what clinical term is going to be what we're all going through right now. But I think that it's a way to make people feel good and special and happy and give them memories. I know it was therapeutic for us. I mean, we felt it was so, I felt so unmoored in March. And I find this in my personal life too. When I don't know what to do, I'll just go into the kitchen and cook. And so the first thing we did as a company, I think we knew immediately, like we can't just sit back and wait for someone to tell us what to do. Like the company will just slowly diffuse and disintegrate. And so we're like, we gotta do something. So the first thing we did was we cooked meals for an organization in Philly called Broad Street Hospitality that provides meals for you know food insecure folks. That was the first thing we did. Cause I just, 
think we felt like we just have to get back in the kitchen and do what we do. So for us, I think you you did. We were I was like sell the company. Like we have nothing. <laughs> we sell it. We could have sold it for a dollar at that point. I was like, I just want to crawl under the covers and I want to like wake up when this is over. That's what I wanted to do. But I think it meant, it meant a lot for us <laughs> to be able to do what we do. And like it, it it was like it gave us a reason for being in a time when there was like no it was an amorphous sea we were swimming in of, of of not knowing what to do. And then, you know, I think people in general were just looking for any way to connect with their with the way things used to be and food. Couldn't come to restaurants, but they could experience, you know, they could connect with their memories through food, I think. You know, we still get people emailing. We've stopped doing takeout from the from the full service restaurants a long time ago, but we still get weekly emails like the Shabbat dinner that you guys would do from Zahav or Laser Wolf during the pandemic was so like important to our family. Are you still doing that? I'm, I'm glad we had that outlet for ourselves and I'm glad we were able to provide a little bit of, of something for people. There were so many people who probably were interested in a Shabbat dinner. Like there's a way in which people really dug into tradition as well, right? Like people were just like baking challah all of a sudden who would have never thought of themselves as someone who would do that. Right. And I feel like people wanted people wanted more mooring and like Judaism was a way for people who never really would think of it like that. You gave us your Israel Rex, like your your food Rex, when we were when we last spoke, and I'm I'm so curious about what what has happened there. I mean, were the shutdowns different? I mean, are the restaurants? Was it? You know, I know like the rent probably isn't the same stress as it is here. I mean, how did how did it fare? Mm, I don't know. Things are definitely very volatile and mm. tourism dependent, and I think that bureaucracy with government is more challenging than it is here. I took a trip there last month, and we ate at M25, which is one of our favorites. And, you know, Jonathan Borowitz, amazing chef and amazing personality, you know, kind of to our group was like, man, it feels so good to hear English here, finally. So I think that everyone now is doing okay. Were there new places that had opened last month that you were excited about? Yeah, there's some new places. And I'm trying to think about where we went that was new. Oh my gosh. Is it Rashta? Yeah, this guy, JJ, who lives in, not in Rafa, but south a little bit. He is incredible. You just sort of sit down and he cooks and he has this field behind him and they foraged for all of the za'atar and he's got this like baked frika thing. We went right, it's like spring, so the frika was all being sort of harvested. It was incredible. The guys that own Machni Huda sort of company have this um, vegetarian or vegetable forward restaurant in the Shuk that's like incredible. That was really, really good. Yeah, I mean, there's so much going on. Can you describe like what you imagine as like the perfect night at Laser Wolf? Like you walk into this this space and like, what do you see? The perfect night is like, I don't know, it's sort of happening, right? It's like high energy and uh, the sun is setting and the weather is great, which has been about 50-50. And the windows are up and people are sort of enjoying the view and also the smell of the sort of kebab, like the lamb fat dripping on charcoal and eating, stuffing their faces with food. Music is loud, right? The reality is we'll have 200 and, I don't know, 50 customers come in tonight that are all expecting perfect, right? And they're all have these like subjective biases and we have to exceed expectations with every one of them, you know? So there isn't a ton of time. I mean, it is nice to see a full dining room. It is nice to be embraced by a different market and coming into New York out of towners is, is intimidating and scary. And so to have so many people very excited about it is great. We have an amazing team here. 
an amazing team, which we partially inherited and then sort of built a lot of, uh, and, and, and that is just developing that team has been probably the, the most thrilling or exciting. It's just, we have a great crew of people. Well, thank you so much for welcoming us into Laser Wolf and congratulations. I'm going to just refer to you as Muttle and Tevya from now on, yeah. if that's okay. <laughs> thank you. That's what and our bowling shirts say. We'll be back for the, the performance. Like, we actually have to do this now. No, right? I think it's okay. a really good idea. Right, good. <laughs> I'm, I'm again. I'm on board. Get the script. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamu, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J. Crew! it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Brous and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. To the mailbox, a few primo letters this week. Uh, I like to think of the mailbox as our letteria. 
It's like you can go there and they'll just serve you. It's like slices. Charcuterie. A few primo letters this week that I have carefully called, selected, and curated for your listening pleasure. Many of you wrote in about Licorice Pizza. Thank you for taking our advice and watching it. We're honored. Here's just one great one. With all due respect and full-on love for your podcast, I believe that no one commented on the conversation about Licorice Pizza because it was a little creepy. Yes, I said it, and this is coming from a gay New Yorker who witnesses creepy regularly. Have you ever been on the Grinder app? What was creepy is that Mark and Leo clearly have the hots for the Alana Haim character and were imagining themselves as Cooper Hoffman's character. Or we're recalling a hot girl, a hot, or we're recalling a, a hot girl. <laughs> how do you say this? <laughs> Where does the hyphen go? Work. A hot girl, hot girl summer situation. Summer. <laughs> I love this. Just like, where's the hyphen? Google hot girl summer after this. Hot girl summer? <laughs> I don't even know what's so funny. Is that a term, hot girl yes. summer? Is that a thing? I've never, what's a hot girl summer? Is that a summer when you get with a hot girl? It's when you are a hot girl summer. Oh. Like okay. hot girl summer is like, like. <laughs> oh my God, this is the Quinn best one. Literally this, is the about best to explode. one. this is the best one yet. Or, so the hyphens are in hot girl summer. Okay. Or we're recalling a hot girl summer situation from their own youth. Yours, Scott Cook. Well, Scott, um... I don't know, Liel, I've, we've been called to the mat there. First of all, if we're imagining, I won't speak for you, my friend. If okay. I'm imagining myself as anyone in this movie, it's a Bradley Cooper character. <laughs> <laughs> Coked out of his mind, violent, and stripping Barbara Streisand. That's right. my speech. With a Ferrari but, in the like, driveway. I have to say, his vibe. nose is not where I want it to be in this no. movie. <laughs> I love this. This is not a comment on the movie. This is a comment on the lack of letter writing in response to our conversation about right. licorice pizza. Right. The, the licorice pizza discourse on the show is just getting better and better. Better and better. So I will hit this letter head on. Um, so yes, of course I have the hots for Alana Haim in this movie. She's incredibly beautiful and she plays an incredibly sexy, awesome character. So yeah, I mean, that's, that's some low-hanging fruit there, Scott, but good work. I'll own that. Was I imagining myself as Cooper Hoffman's character? No. Um, at 15, I actually was shy and insecure and obsessed with fellow 15-year-olds, basically. I didn't, 23 would have not even, like, wouldn't have been on- It wasn't it, 23 and me for you? It was not, it was, that would not have been within my can. I couldn't even have thought that. But was I recalling a hot girl summer situation from my own youth? No, I had no such situations. I don't know. I mean, if, if what you're saying is that it was projection and that I wanted to be Cooper Hoffman, no, I actually just thought it was a great movie. Nice try but I really just thought it was a great movie. And also, I mean, look, my own particular Did I want to be Dirk Diggler in- in Yes, you did. What, Boogie Nights? Of course no. you did. <laughs> like, I don't want to be any character in a Paul Thomas Anderson movie. I don't think. <laughs> None. <laughs> None. It never, it never ends well. Not even the one about the founder of Scientology. <laughs> Definitely not that one. Dear Unorthodox, I'm so glad I found this podcast as I have for quite some time found myself increasingly curious about and drawn to the Jewish faith and tradition. She wants to fellowship with us. This is not a burning question, but just struck my interest. There was reference in the episode to the issues of backing into a parking space and sleeping under a top sheet. Could you enlighten me? Sincerely, Danielle. So here's a Gentile woman who has found her way to our podcast, is curious about the Jewish faith and tradition, and now feels like she's missing something in Torah. She's been reading her Torah and maybe her Joseph Telushkin and How to Be a Jew and she hasn't seen anything about parking spaces and top sheets. Mind blown. Well, this is like the way Talmudic commentary works, right? There's like the initial thing, and then there's like the Rashi commentary. Am I getting mm -hmm. this all right, yep. Yael? Host of Daily Podcast Take One. This is completely unrelated to everything about Judaism, Danielle. Um, this is a complete... 
We didn't mean to lead you astray. Yes, no. I'm so sorry. No. You're not going to find this. I am not buying this at all. So these are things that have come up as, you know, when you grow up and your family does something and then you sort of find someone else whose family also did that weird thing and you're like, oh, this wasn't just me. I think these were our attempts to like extrapolate from our own personal experiences. And they actually took off because other people also experienced these them These were similarly. big debates. These were big listener debates on our show at some point. I think we put to the listeners the question of what do you consider Jewish and what's Goyish? So and this is an extension of like the Lenny Bruce Judaism Jewish and Goyish. manifests itself in the minute details. Right. And so this, some this people- This is where it matters. Of, we, these are old debates on our show where some listeners argued on the show and in the Facebook group that using a top sheet was incredibly Jewish and others said it's incredibly non-Jewish. And then there was another debate about, do, I think I said only Gentiles back into their parking spaces. And then and people I said, wrote oh, in no. and said, oh, no, 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 My no. dad backed in, you got to be able to get out. So, so these are all things that started as like weird quirks of our own families, like you with the top sheet thing. Um, <laughs> and then we decided- <laughs> You mean the way my family is normal because when we buy top sheets, we use them? And then you were like, I think Jews don't use top sheets. Like it, it, these sort of things, these were almost like asides. My that sister-in-law actually, doesn't use top sheets. So these were asides <laughs> that were, were mentioned on the show that listeners actually were like, wait, no, 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 I do that too. And the then title we, of your we, erotic novel. We basically took on the Lenny Bruce sheet. Jewish versus Goyish and have decided that certain things are Jewish. And it's honestly been one of the more interesting and like dynamic conversations right, honestly, of the show. That's what the Talmud is. It's not like, well, here's the rule for all this. It's like, okay. Now, what about this incredibly specific form of behavior? Does that count as following th the law? Like, that's what we're I doing. I think here. we owe Danielle the clear-cut explanation that this has nothing to do with Actually, canonical yeah. Torah this Judaism. everything to do with canonical <laughs> We were Torah arguing Judaism. about Jewish culture. Is there something about certain Jewish families that makes them prefer not using the top sheet or— well, backing into I parking think, spaces. I think the best one was uh, tinfoil versus saran wrap. Mm. And we were like arguing. I honestly don't even remember where we all started on those things. But people were like, no, we use we use tinfoil. That's Jewish. Then people are like, we use saran wrap. That's Jewish. And everyone's like, guys, Tupperware. Yes. The concept of Tupperware, like the concept of leftovers is very Jewish. Tupperware feels very well. I think yes. Tupperware is Nazi fascist. I think it was founded by Jans Joachim Tupper, von Tupper. 100%. Von Tupper. Von Tupper. And it's basically, it's everything's supposed to be clean and pure the, and to keep the, the Jew out. For the Luftwaffe. <laughs> the best thing, that the, the parking space one was really, really funny because that started as like you being like only Gentiles back in. And I was like- It's no, like macho guys in trucks want to show yes, you they can back into and spaces. And I was like, no, no, no. I always, I grew up with a father who always backed into parking spaces. And we were like, yeah, you got to be able to get out if they come No, we got to let from and someone that, yes, who said the Anti-Defamation yes. League training on how to stay safe as a Jew in the world Literally is always be backed into your parking space. So if you have to get out of Dodge fast, you could just in your the, Dodge. you could just accelerate and just go. So like this random thing actually ended up having like, oh my God, it was amazing. So Let's Danielle- think, We should and, do and a as, new one. And as Rav Khuna says in Tractate Marriott and the Talmud, <laughs> you know, thou art a filthy animal unless thou sleepest on a top sheet. <laughs> It's my five, but that's actually, that hasn't come yet. That's next year, right? That, that's, yeah, that's next volume so, 73. So let's get a new let's one Let's get going. a new one. Listeners, it's been a while since we've had one of these arguments. Write to us, unorthodox at tabletmag.com or call us 914-570-4869. We hereby command you, now that the Omer is over and you have all that time freed up from not counting it anymore, please write to us or call us. What is the thing that you think of as most Jewish in a totally trivial cultural sense? So write in with something random that you do or don't do and claim that it's Jewish or not. Let's get this started. <laughs> Arrogate to yourself the entire tradition. Please, that's what we're here for.
Our Jew of the Week is James Kerchick. I have known James Kerchick for so long that I actually knew when he went by Jamie. And I insist that everyone keep calling him Jamie. But you should do that when you're having a conversation with him about his new book, which is getting called a, an instant classic of American political history. I haven't read it yet, but it is apparently astonishingly good. It's called Secret City, The Hidden History of Gay Washington. And I was unfortunately not able to be in on the interview with Liel and Jamie, in which Liel talked to him about this history of what it was like to be gay and often closeted in Washington, D.C., beginning in about the New Deal era in the 1930s and moving forward in time. Here's that conversation. Okay, I have to start with the requisite praise. This is an unfreaking believable book. I mean, you pick something up and it's just, you know, the hidden history of like it's a 800 something page volume and you think it's, it's 650 be, pages with 150 pages of notes. Which, so to make that clear to the show the kind of work that went into <laughs> this. This is the sort of book in which every seven and a half pages, there's a, oh my God, I cannot believe this actually happens. This reads like, 93 James Bond movies kind of <laughs> folded into one. It's like it's like Eric Ambler wrote. This is like the great espionage thriller. We're going to get to all that. We're going to get to the work to, to get there. But first of all, I want to talk about you. So here you are, uh, a Yale-educated intellectual, arriving at Washington, D.C. What, what is it that you find? What is it that you see? What are your first impressions of this beautiful swamp? Well, one of the things you realize is it's a very gay city. There are lots of, mostly gay men, okay? And it's, why is that? Why are there so many gay people? And, and this has been confirmed, by the way, by the census. I think it found that Washington, D.C. is actually the highest proportion of LGBT Americans of any state in the union. And probably that might be because it's, you know, just a city. But still, it's about 10 to 15%. So it's high. So that struck me uh, living there. And so you start asking, why is this, right? What What is it about this place that attracts so many gay people. And then I started um, reading more history and realizing that this has long been the case. It's not just something that's happened, you know, in my time being there. And there's something about Washington. I think the skills that it calls for, the things that make you successful in Washington, an ability to keep secrets, a duty to be loyal, to perhaps. These sorts of skills or uh, personality traits are what the city needs. And so I've discovered throughout my reading of history that this, this could go all the way back really to the New Deal, I think, when Washington was really becoming a federal capital and all these bureaucratic institutions were being built and you had all these gay people basically escaping small town provincial life, which is sort of an old story of, of gay people in America fleeing, you know, fleeing the provinces for the cities. But Washington, that story hasn't been told yet. Everyone knows about, you know, New York being a kind of a, a place for gay people in, in Greenwich Village and San Francisco, obviously, but that was much later in the 70s. But Washington, I think, has this sort of unknown, unrecognized, unacknowledged history as a, as a kind of gay capital. It's not just Washington. I mean, the, the, the case that you make so incredibly well is that here is, you know, our nation's busy being born as literally the sort of the epicenter of the free world, uh, which is a thrust powered in large part by the energy, the ingenuity, the loyalty, the passion of these gay men who, as, as you just said, are uniquely situated to be there because by circumstance, uh, they cannot live out in the open. Uh, they cannot indulge in normal family life like every other American. They have to be very discerning about who they trust, which makes them sort of preternaturally great 
at the particular skill set that is required in that town in that moment. So in other words, it's not just, you know, how how sort of gays made D.C. It's in a way, it's how gays made make America great. Mm. No? Yeah, well, it's Washington, I think, as you could say, it's or has been. It's changed a lot, but it was at this time in my book, you could say it's the, it was the gayest and the anti-gayest city in America simultaneously. We already just went through the reasons why it was the gayest city. It was also extremely anti-gay because uh, during the Cold War era, you were suspected of being a traitor or a communist or easily blackmailable if you were gay. And this panic sets in around World War II when national security is elevated to this importance for the state. And homosexuality goes from being a sin to being a national security threat. And then with the McCarthy era, communism and homosexuality get conflated. McCarthy gives his famous speech where he's in Wheeling, West Virginia, where he has the supposed list of communists in his hands. That's on February 9th, 1950. Less than three weeks later, an undersecretary for the State Department is testifying on on Capitol Hill. And just in passing, he mentions that 91 homosexuals had been separated from the State Department in the previous couple of years. And suddenly the two of these threats, the communist red threat and then the lavender menace, the lavender threat, get conflated in the public mind. And you have this decades-long purge of gay people from the federal government. Except that in a weird way, yes, if you are genuinely of the Communist Party, you have some recourse. Uh, you have camaraderie. You have you could break away from the party. You could sort of you know, change your views as so many uh, neocons uh, later have. You could, you at least have this major support system. If you're gay, as, as the earlier parts of the book make abundantly clear, and we'll get to some yeah. of these amazing stories in a second, there's nowhere for you to go. Right. And this is why I say is actually being gay was, was more dangerous than being a communist. Because as you rightly point out, some of the leading figures in American conservatism were ex-communists. They could leave the party, they could denounce the party, and then they could go on their way. Whereas if you were gay, you could not do that. And I actually, there's one person in whom this sort of duality is indicated or, or, or visible, and that's Whitaker Chambers, who was both an ex-communist and had a gay life in the 1930s. And this becomes a sort of um, implicit, insinuated aspect of the whole saga between him and Alger Hiss in 1948. There's a whisper campaign spread about him, about him being a pervert, about him being a sexual degenerate, uh, accusing him of being a spurned homosexual. And that's why he's making up these accusations about Alger Hiss being a spy. So Whitaker Chambers could come out, so to speak, as a former communist. There's no way he could come out as a former homosexual. That would have, dis- that would have discredited him entirely. So very cleverly divided into different administrations. And I want to give a, a little taste of, of the unbelievable richness of research before I ask you some questions about the, the research. So we begin, as you said, in the 30s. It's the eve of the Second World War. Uh, it's FDR's DC. And both the policy towards Soviet Russia and Nazi Germany seems to be kind of incredibly intertwined with a host of supremely talented gay men and also with a lot of moral panic that the Nazis, for example, are operating a brothel in Brooklyn yes. to extort senators. Yeah. Uh, pick pick, a, pick a, an anecdote. There's so much to go. I mean, again, this is one of these books in which I could have asked you any number of stories. Pick one anecdote from that period and, and regale us with some Nazi. Well, this was actually something I didn't realize. That, you know, we, we've all seen the producers where, where Mel Brooks is making fun of the Nazis and sort of lampooning them as kind of swishy gays. 
And we all know that there's sort of this weird, maybe kind of association between homosexuality and fascism, but we think it has to do with, you know, S&M and whatnot. But I didn't really know until researching this book that in the highest reaches of the federal government, they were convinced that the Nazi leadership was basically riddled with homosexuals. I came across a document that was forwarded to the the predecessor organization of the CIA, the OSS, where it was suggested to them that they actually recruit in the terms of this, this letter, quote, patriotic homosexuals for the purposes of infiltrating the Nazi high command because they just assumed that all these Nazi leaders were gay and they could find some handsome young men and insinuate them <laughs> because, of course, gay men were officially prohibited from serving in the military. That's when the, anti, when the anti-gay exclusion policy began was World War II. Of course, very few gay men were actually excluded because they needed every warm body they could get. But this was a, this was a fascinating discovery for me. And it also comes up in, there are these multiple uh, OSS sort of psychological studies that the federal government commissioned on Hitler, on his sort of psychological state. And both of them go on at length about his potential homosexual nature. Including one co-authored by Freud. Well, that's an earlier, that's another one. That's another, uh, yes, Freud co-authors a book with William Bullitt, who was the first ambassador to the Soviet Union. They are speculating that Woodrow Wilson was a repressed homosexual. Oh, that's a Wilson book. Yes. I'm sorry, right? They now. were they were speculating right. that the failure of the Versailles Treaty right. was due to Woodrow Wilson's sort of innate femininity. He had an edible complex, and he was just this sort of repressed homosexual who who couldn't stand up to the other ally in 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 writing the the post-World War One Versailles Treaty. So you just you just find homosexuality appearing so often throughout this book and throughout throughout American history as people going to it as sort of an explanatory way, a way to explain various phenomena. It's a very, there's a very conspiratorial nature to homophobia. And I think it's actually, this was another sort of conclusion I came right in this book is that this nature of homophobia is very similar to anti-Semitism in this way. There's a lot of similarities between gays and Jews. They're sort of diasporic people. They're, you know, all around the world, their loyalties are not to the nations in which they live. They transcend national boundaries. At they one have, and the same time, they are, you know, deeply sexualized beings and too. insufficiently sexualized beings. Right. right. And once they're secular, you know, secular Jews can hide. Right. Gay, gay people can hide. So they're deceptive. They're hidden. They're mysterious. And so you see recurringly that, you know, homosexuality is blamed for, I just said, the end of the, the, the failure of the vers- treaty. It's blamed for the rise of fascism. Joe McCarthy blames it for communism. Uh, There's this crazy scandal that I uncovered about Ronald Reagan being controlled by a cabal of right-wing homosexuals. It's just sort of, it's just a recurring theme. And I think it has a lot to do with the secrecy of homosexuality. Now it's not, and we all know gay people are out in the open very much, but under the time examined in this book, it was something that you did not talk about. I mean, even the word homosexual was not used. One of the things I learned in this book was all the euphemisms that people would come up with to describe homosexuality, right? There's the love that dare not speak its name. And this this scandal you mentioned earlier about a Nazi brothel in Brooklyn in 1942, where a a senator, a U.S. senator, was supposedly implicated. The majority leader of the Senate referred to homosexuality as a a crime too loathsome to mention. Right. If I recall correctly, even the New York Times wrote it. We cannot reprint the allegations. That was with FDR when he was assistant secretary of the Navy. In 1919, there was this gay scandal up in Newport, Rhode Island, and on the front page of the New York Times, it said, yeah, details unprintable was how the New York Times <laughs> had to describe it. So, you know, some people might have been able to, d- to deduce what they were saying, but, you know, for a lot of people, it was just this 
just just this mystery. Okay, so you're you're a gay man who came of age in a totally different here. What how you would describe the era? It's it's not exactly you know what it is today, but when 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 you were coming up, it was already changing considerably. Uh, when you are doing all this research, what does the past look like to you from from the lens of of the present? What how you how are you emotionally, personally, sort of reading these stories of these absolutely? I mean, the the, the heartbreak of the, here I am, you know, being so moved by the cloak and dagger and kind of like this like great kind of thrust that you describe here. But this is an, a profoundly heartbreaking book because page after page, you have these incredibly talented, gifted, committed, passionate humans who are destroyed for no reason. Who are they to you? How do you how do you kind of work yourself back into time, or or is it maybe easier than it seems? Uh, it definitely grounded me and just gave me an enormous sense of gratitude because my sexual orientation has never been an inhibitor. It's never inhibited me from doing what I've wanted to do professionally. And I'm immensely lucky because if I had been born, you know, earlier, then that wouldn't have been the case. And there's a particularly heartbreaking story of a man who was, he was 36 at the time, which is about the age I was when I was writing this book. His name was Bob Waldron. And he was an aide to LBJ, Lyndon, Lyndon Johnson. Started working for him when Johnson was Senate Majority Leader. Works with him when he becomes vice president. And then he's on his way to joining the White House staff after the Kennedy assassination. He's in the limousine with LBJ as they drive from the church to Arlington National Cemetery. That's how close he is to Johnson. But of course, he has to undergo a background check at this point. And in the course of that background check, they discover that he's gay. And one of the really, I think, probably the most amazing, most moving finds, I think, of the book was I discovered Waldron's FBI file. And in that, I discovered the letter that he wrote to the man who outed him to the to the government. And it's just an incredibly heartbreaking letter. And he says that our society does not permit a return to homosexuals. That's that's how he described it. That we can be interior decorators and whatnot. But, you know, I wanted to serve my country. I was about to, you know, go into the White House with this man who I have such admiration for, Lyndon Johnson. And now our society does not permit a return to that. And it was just and there's just so many stories like this. And and you think of just the waste, you know, the waste of talent uh, that, that as a country we did not reap, the waste of resources that went into this pointless witch hunt, uh, the lives destroyed. Does it make you review your own politics, your own affiliations, allegiances? Um, I'd say in terms of my political views, a few things. I think it made me much more uh, suspicious or skeptical of sort of moral hysteria. Because this was a moral hysteria. More of a moral hysteria than the Red Scare was. Because at the end of the day, there were some communists in the U.S. government. Joe McCarthy obviously exaggerated, and, and what he did was terrible. But, you know, Alger Hiss was a spy, and Harry Dexter White was a spy. There was something that that was based on. He abused it in a very bad way. There's not a single... There's not a single instance of a gay person turning over information to a foreign power because they were blackmailed into doing so, right? So there was, not, there was no basis to this whatsoever. It was pure moral hysteria. And just to see the way in which this view that gay people are a national security threat, it was universally believed. I mean, there are very, very rare exceptions. Does anyone challenge this? One of the interesting ones was a, was a great journalist named Max Lerner a great sort of liberal American journalist who was writing for the New York Post. And he does this really 
interesting series of articles at the height of the lavender scare called the Washington Sex Story, where he just goes around basically interviewing people in the FBI and the CIA on Capitol Hill, the chief of the DC police, trying to find, you know, is there any actual evidence? <laughs> is there any actual evidence of and no one can give him the evidence, right? But no one else did this. Everyone's just sort of, oh, it makes sense. You know, gays are sort of homosexuals. We have to use the terms, right? So they are, they're sick, they're degenerate. Uh, of course, they're going to be blackmailed. And of course, they're communists. And just people just went along with it of both parties. It was just a sort of bipartisan obsession. And now we, now we look on it and, you know, people laugh sometimes when they read the quotes in the book. That's how preposterous it seems today, but it didn't seem preposterous then. So I think it made me sort of, it, it, it's made me more sort of skeptical of kind of the prevailing, you know, conventional wisdom of, of the day, because it can often be wrong. It also made me just profoundly, even, I've, I've always been very sort of supportive of free expression and free speech and whatnot, but it's made me even more, because as a gay person, you have to understand, to go from being the most despised minority in this country, we're talking, you know, criminal, we're talking medically pathologized as mentally insane. And that doesn't change until 1973 that the American Psychiatric Association we'll get to that reverses it. Yeah. And then from the religious community, basically the entire society considers gay people just the lowest of the low. And to go from that to today, it is the most dramatic transformation in public attitudes and legal status in American history. And how does it come about? It comes about through gay people being able to convince their fellow citizens that they're humans just like them. And it takes decades, but it's relatively quick when you consider all the other movements for social equality in this country. And that wouldn't have happened without freedom of expression. So those, are, I would say, are the main sort of, you could say, maybe current day um, political uh, influences that doing this book has, has, has had. Those are tremendously hopeful. So, so let's talk for a second about some of the trailblazers. There are a handful of people in your book who, at a time when it was uh, deeply prohibitive yeah. to do so, uh, came out in the open. Tell us, tell us some stories. Well, the one, who's, the one who everyone should know is a man named Frank Kameny, who was uh, born to uh, uh, Jewish. I mean, he was very militant atheist, but he's also very Jewish in a way. And I got to know Frank later in his life. He was a great cantankerous old gay Jew. And he was a Harvard-trained astronomer who was working for the Army Map Service, he wanted to be an astronaut. This was the currently the, the Geospatial Intelligence Agency. And he was fired from the federal government in 1957 for being gay. You have to understand up to that point, hundreds or thousands of gay people had been fired and not a single one of them challenged their dismissal. They all slinked away because to, to challenge your dismissal would have been to publicize it. And no one would have wanted to have been identified as a homosexual in the 1950s, he decides to challenge it. And he basically becomes the first openly gay person in America, in, in a way, uh, who's known. I mean, he takes his case all the way to the Supreme Court. They don't want to hear it. Um, but he devotes the rest of his life to fighting for gay equality. He starts the Washington chapter of the Mattachine Society, which is the first real gay rights organization in the United States. He is the one who leads the fight to repeal the inclusion of homosexuality in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, which is the, the book of psychiatric mental disorders. He's also the first openly gay person to run for Congress in 1971, which is the year that the District of Columbia got its non-voting representative delegate, I believe it's called, in, in Congress. He, he runs for Congress. So he, many firsts for him. 
Um, and I got to know Frank later in life, and he basically lived a life of penury. I mean, he this is a guy who could have made a lot of money, obviously, as a government scientist. And he was so stubborn about everything. And you just realize, thank God he was so stubborn, because he realized, you know what, I'm right. And he would say this all the time. He goes, I'm right, and society is wrong. And I'm going to make society change. And it's hard to think of like another one person, you know, who was able to reverse uh, an entire consensus on this question that dates back thousands of years, right? It's views on homosexuality. And he just stubbornly persisted. And his papers are the Library of Congress, and I went through them, and there's hundreds of boxes. And this guy would write letters to every senator, every congressman, every president in this just, you know, very methodical, um, kind of, you know, scientific, you know, astute way. Um, he would always refer to the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. He was not, by any means, a kind of radical liberationist. Everything, all the arguments were grounded in the American founding. He's an incredible person. Another interesting character was a guy named Herman Lynn Womack, who was a 300-pound albino college professor and pornographer. He basically becomes the largest publisher. They used to be called Beefcake Magazines. And these were sort of, I mean, by today's standards, they'd be very innocent. Basically, pinups, you know, that straight men would have pinups of, you know, Marilyn Monroe or whoever. This was basically the gay version of a, of a pinup magazine. And he starts publishing these in the late 50s and early 60s in Washington, D.C. And he becomes, he's referred to by one newspaper as the, the pornography king of Washington. And he gets arrested for obscenity. The magazine, uh, the, his magazines are shut down. He takes his case to the Supreme Court. It's actually the first gay rights case that the Supreme Court hears in 1962. And he wins. And the judgment is very important. The judge rules, uh, was Judge Harlan, and he basically says, I find these images disgusting, but they're no more disgusting than those that are used to titillate heterosexuals. And so therefore they shouldn't be judged by a different standard. And that's actually a very important principle when you think about it. And I think would, would later be influential in future gay rights decisions. Um, there's a woman, Midge Costanza, who, was, who worked for Jimmy Carter. She was his public liaison, a closeted lesbian who organized the first meeting of gay rights activists at the White House in 1977. Jimmy Carter was happened to have been away at Camp David that weekend. It was probably deliberate. But that was an important moment to be able to actually have, you know, visible, identified gay people come to the White House and sit in the cabinet room and have a conversation with an aide to the president of the United States was a pretty important moment in history. So those are those are a few. It's not, I should say the book is not a history of the movement it's not a history of the gay rights movement per se. It's more of a, of a, of a history of, of gay people in power. But clearly these two groups of people are in dialogue and in conversation with each other. And in the 1980s, I think, is when it gets really dramatic because that's when you have these two communities. You have sort of the gays out of power, the activists who hadn't really existed in large numbers before coming into conflict with this Reagan administration where there are lots of gay people hiding in the closet. And it becomes, and that's when, when outing this phenomenon really, really takes off. It's... Fascinating to hear retell these stories uh, in in this concise way now, because you know you, you've, we've spoken a little bit about the similarities between you know being Jewish and being gay, and yet you write in the book that there's one kind of major and again quite heartbreaking difference is Jewish people devote a lot of their time and energy to retelling the history of their yes. tribe and making sure that right. these tales 
of, of heroes and rabbis and, and people who have shaped our history are well known from, you know, generation to generation. Whereas, as you wrote for a lot of gay people, I mean, I assume that to you, for example, a lot of this was completely new when you started researching. Absolutely. Absolutely. I say that in the intro. Americans of any religious background or ethnic group, they can learn the history of their people, so to speak, through their relatives, right? Through their parents, their grandparents, their aunts and uncles. Uh, if you're Jewish, it's around the Passover table. That's what we do. We read the history of our of our people every year. Gay Americans don't don't have that generational connection um, because homosexuality is not a, it's not a heritable trait. And so, when you're gay, you have to find these things out for yourself. If you're lucky, you might be able to find older gay people who can be mentors to you. And I had some of them. I've I've had many of them. And I'm but I had I had to seek those people out. But even then, it wasn't. It's not the same. And there aren't that many books that have been written on real on gay history. And this isn't taught in schools either. And so I felt, you know, as a journalist, you're always looking for something new, right? You want to scoop. And I want to think of this book, I, maybe I'm, that's not the right language to use for book of history, but I, I really do think of it as like a big scoop, the book itself. There are lots of little, there are lots of individual scoops in it, but I think the book itself, I think is... I would hope to say re revelatory in that it in that it tells a, a history that hasn't been told before. What does the city look like? Has your relationship to to this like you you've been there for what a decade now? Yeah, about a decade. Yeah. Has it has it changed? Has it deepened? Has it coarsened? Has it does no do knowing all these things? It's also a really like palpable sense of the city itself, of halls of power and alleyways. I mean, you really feel a lot of these locations. What's the relationship between the two of you now? I'm ready to move on um, <laughs> for reasons not really having to do with the book. But I feel You're like- You're going to LA. Well, I think, we'll see. LA or maybe here in New York. I just feel like I've spent a long time in Washington and this is a pretty good sort of capstone to that part of, of my career. And it's not because I'm depressed by the stories that I'm telling that are that that were sad or tragic, but I'm I'm ready to to explore new vistas. You're ready to spend more time with your family. <laughs> so one last question: If I'm a you know 21 year old gay person, and I'm uh, very well aware by this point that there is not a lot of kind of history delivered to me, and then I do have to seek it out for myself, and I pick out this book because I hope. Everyone, gay, straight alike, will very soon do. If you're listening right now, go pause, go buy the book, come back to us. What is it that you would like me to take away? Is this a tremendously hopeful book of change? Is this a, a book of, is this a grim reminder uh, of how, you know, persecution is always there and bigotry is always there, just lurking behind the surface? Is it a little bit of both? What what emotional state of mind would you like me to be in after I'm... I think it's both of those, but I think the word triumphalist is sort of used as a derogatory term, but I think this is a triumphal story. I think it's something that we can be proud of as a country. And it's hard to think of an issue right now where there is sort of societal consensus about anything, except basic equality for gays and lesbians. I mean, that's something that, you know, 70% of Americans support gay marriage, including 55% of Republicans. It's hard to find another issue right now when we're so hopelessly divided about everything and we're constantly reminded of those divisions that this is this is one area where we can be uh, proud and we can say, you know what, we, we've made amazing progress and it's a great thing. And it's very fashionable now to denigrate this country and to denigrate our history and to say it's all one 
long story of oppression and discrimination. And I'm not here to deny, obviously, that that has been a facet of our history. But what this book does show is that we are uniquely equipped as a society to change for the better. And so that's the message that I would want readers to take away. Hallelujah. James Kirchhoff. Thank you. Thank you so much for being our guest. Mazel tovs. Leo, do you have a mazel tov? Oh, do I have a mazel tov to my hero. Speak of childhood crush. To my childhood crush. To my beloved, <laughs> Kate Bush, who, by grace of the show Stranger Things, which included her song Running Up the Hill in their latest season, has had her first top 10 song ever, 37 years after it came out. This is as important a cultural moment as when the OC vaulted uh, Paul McCartney's Maybe I'm Amazed back into the top 30, 41 years after it was first in the top 30. Stephanie, do you have a mazel tov? My mazel tov is to Jeffrey Schottenstein and Ariel Boker, who got married recently. I don't know them, but do you know who <laughs> does know them? LeBron James. So Schottenstein is part of a big Columbus Jewish family, and they've long known LeBron James of formerly Cleveland Cavaliers fame. So LeBron was at this wedding. Question for the two of you. Who's the most famous athlete you could get to show up at your next wedding? God forbid. God forbid there's a second wedding. I could pull Lenny Dykstra. And I could do that by paying <laughs> Lenny Dykstra $150 and promising him <laughs> two slices of pizza. See, I think I may be able to pull Travis Best because he is a Springfield, you know, he's a, he's a launsman. I don't think he's too busy now. I did see him, you know, win the state title back in 1990 at the Worcester Centrum. I think I would go through my Aunt Pam who was the director of marketing for the New York Knicks Whoa. in the 90s. Uh, the, yes, the first woman on their executive team. She's awesome. She's the reason we have the Knicks City Dancers. You get some sparks, um, some Ewing. Yeah, so that's, and that's, yeah. for me, that's where I want to go. Yeah. All of these names have led up to the name of Joelle Grunsendler, who was called to the Torah as a bar mitzvah at my shul in New Haven a couple weeks ago and killed it, did a wonderful job. And mazel uh, a mazel tov to the whole Korda Grunsendler family. It was a, it was a, a wonderful, wonderful day. Unorthodox is a production of Tablet Studios. The show is hosted by me, Mark Oppenheimer, and Stephanie Butnick and Leah Leibowitz. We're produced and edited by Josh Cross, Robert Scaramucci, and Quinn Waller. And the team also includes Star, Fredman Ader, Daron Rusquet, and Tanya Singer. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can get Unorthodox swag at bit.ly slash unortho shirt. Our episode art is by Esther Werdiger, theme music by Golem, online at golemrocks.com, and mailbox name by Steve Barton. Producer Josh Cross here. That awesome Fiddler song you heard earlier in the episode was To Life, performed by Yidcore. Please write to us at unorthodox at tabletmag.com or call us at 914-570-4869 with uh, complaints, with thoughts, with, you know, deep thoughts of the day. And if you actually want to send us stuff because you're inspired by hearing how much we appreciate listener gifts, you can send it to P.O. Box 20079. That's 20079, New York, New York, 10001. Rabbinic Supervision this week by Rabbi Rachel Kaplan-Marks at Temple Beth Israel in Skokie, Illinois. And we come to you from the studio. And we come to you. We, and this is the best line of the week. I didn't write this. Credit to the team. We come to you from the studios of Tablet Studios. Shalom, friends. Takes a village. <laughs> And he's super talented. He won a Nobel Prize and went to Bronx Science. So you figure he's Jewish, right? Bradley Cooper won a Wait, Nobel what? Prize?
Yeah, according to my aunt Sylvia, he actually won a Nobel <laughs> Prize and went to Bronx Science. It was it was it was a bit I was doing there, Liel. Oh, sorry. Oh, I thought it was you were talking joke. about Fernstein. I was I, I was I, lost I, there in the funhouse for a second. So, so by the way, I'm sorry, Bob Dylan got a Nobel. Like how, <laughs> how, how far how outlandish is it that Bradley Cooper would? 